everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And this episode, we are extremely excited about this episode, aren't we, Landon? Oh, we got some great people on today. Yes, we have an absolutely amazing panel, as you can see right here. We have the indomitable Jim Bennett. Hi, Jim. How are you today? Indomitable as always. Thank you. <laughs> I, I picked an adjective for you. Yes, that I thought that, that might be accurate. Do you like that? I don't, Rebecca I don't know doesn't that use small words. Indomitable. So I, I'm happy to that that I, I like it. I did. You know, when I was a kid, my mom used to give me a quarter every time I used a four syllable word. So the dictionary was my friend when I needed, you know, money to go go to the store. So uh, yes, exactly. Uh, we have our wonderful Ian Wilkes, who is there joining us from. Where are you right now, Ian? Uh, I'm calling you from uh, Canada, where it's it's snowing and minus forty. <laughs> And that's the middle of summer. And that's the summer, which explains his sweater and his tea and the rest of us are like, oh, we're dying. A lot of my American friends actually think it snows in July. No, we get pretty good weather. So greetings from Canada. Greetings from Canada. And we have an absolutely special and wonderful guest that we are so honored to have on Mormonish with us. We have Sam Young. How are you, Sam? I'm doing terrific. Um, I'm in Houston, Texas, and we have something in common with Ian. It's snowing here, too. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of cool no in July. Ah, <laughs> uh, this is a weather episode of Mormonish. No, yeah. it's not. But it's always it's always fun to find out where we're all zooming in from. Um today's topic. Now, uh more uh Landon and I had just interviewed Jim and Ian. I think it dropped a couple of weeks ago and wonderful interview all about their connection and their mission and their podcast Inside Out. And as we were talking, preparing for that and talking off camera before and after, um, another topic came up that we were all very interested in because it's a very current topic. It's happening right now. I think everybody in the Mormon and post-Mormon world is talking about this topic. And Ian especially had some special information um, about this topic that we thought would be really interesting for our viewers to hear. And of course, uh, the topic is about the protection of children and what's happening in the UK right now. And that's why we thought, who else could we bring on to discuss this with us? But of course, Sam Young, um, whose name is synonymous with this here in the United States. So it's a global effort, I would say, wouldn't you, Landon? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. It's a global effort, although it seems that the results are very localized. So that's going to be one of the questions tonight is why is yeah. it only localized? <laughs> exactly. It is. So we thought we'd start out um, just by kind of getting everybody up to speed. I'm sure that you have been following the Britvengers and everything that's happening in the UK, but we thought we'd let Landon give us a quick little rundown of exactly what's been happening recently and why this is talked about everywhere. It seems like every, there's newspaper articles, there's podcasts everywhere you turn. Uh, this is in the news because it's so important. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Landon, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so basically, uh, the area presidency in uh, the North Area Presidency of Europe had put out a letter recently uh, announcing that they were now perform background checks on anyone uh, in the church who is basically serving with a youth. And so the intent is, is that they have to complete a background check before they can go into one of those positions. Uh, which is a huge victory uh, for child protection. And the church in their letter, they actually state, you know, that the, that the safeguarding of children is their number one priority. Um, so we, we wanted to dig in a little bit about that because what most people haven't heard is the background of how that came to be. 
And that really came to be because of the Brit Vengers. Uh, that's the group of podcasters and uh, other uh, nuanced, uh, I would say, nuanced progressive Mormons uh, in, in the UK. And these members actually took to uh, activism, the, the thing that we keep hearing about, you know, activism in the church and how, how bad that is. And yet, in this case, it actually worked. Uh, what happened was Nemo uh, uh, and also uh, the the two ladies that make up the 21st, uh, 21st century saints, uh, they started a letter writing campaign and they actually wrote letters to the bishop. And the way they got around or the way they accomplished this was that uh, UK law says that if, uh, if you are in charge of children or you're over the organization in charge of children, and one of them uh, is is hurt or molested or in some some way harmed, uh, and a background check would have determined that the person that that you know uh, did that harm to them could have been uh, identified through that background check. That that leader is actually responsible uh, and can be held can can be held legally liable for uh, that that uh, harm. And so uh, Nemo and the 21st Century Saints, they put together a letter and they sent it to every bishop, every stake president uh, in the UK, telling them that they were responsible if anything happened, unless these background uh, in, uh, checks happened. And as a result, all the bishops and stake presidents and Relief Society presidents, they all got up in arms and went, wait a minute, we're liable, we're on the hook if something happens, we want background checks. And it started a stir, and uh, that went up the up the chain, and eventually uh, we got this uh, new policy from the from the Europe North Area Presidency, stating that uh, background checks would now be implemented. And they actually called a person in each stake uh, who is responsible for overseeing this program, and the first person was uh, one of the one of the uh, 21st century saints. I can't remember which one of them was was uh, actually the, the first one called. And Nemo actually stood in the circle as they uh, as they uh, put her into her calling. And so uh, it's a it's a great story of how activism mm -hmm. uh, in the church actually prevailed, which rarely ever happens as uh, without somebody getting excommunicated, as Sam Young is well aware of. Uh, because his activism led to excommunication. But in this case, they actually adopted the the, the petition. They actually, uh, and the 21st century saints actually put together a lot of the packets of the training that they were going to use came from them and they put it together. So it's a, it's a success story of what can happen uh, from, the, from the bottom up if, if the saints get involved. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And that's why I wanted to just go over it kind of in a nutshell, because I'm not sure everybody recognized that. And and I just try to picture those bishops and leaders opening those letters and going, what? <laughs> what is this? Because this had been the law for a while, but the church was kind of turning a blind eye. So I'd love to, uh, before we dive into more about the UK, let's take it the other direction. And let's talk to Sam for a minute about exactly what Landon said. Activism, but with a different result. Why don't you just tell us your crusade in the last decade or so, which has impacted so many people, myself included, personally. Okay. Well, <clears throat> so I served as a bishop uh, for five years, and uh, there were, you know, certain things that I didn't do that I found out later that lots of bishops were doing. Um, so the in the and it's still 
in the handbook that the bishops are told to uh, interview each one of the children twice a year, once by the bishop, once by the uh, counselors, once they come to a certain age, twice a year by the bishop. Um, that That's the youth, correct, Sam? 12 that's to, the youth, 12, 12 to, to 17. 17. Yeah. And uh, it's <clears throat> it used to be that it was all alone behind a closed door. And uh, that's the that's the way it's been for a long time. That's the way it was when I was a bishop from 1991 to 1996. But you could ask whatever questions you wanted to ask that child. Now, that's the part I didn't know, that many bishops were asking very sexually explicit questions. And so I started hearing about this and I put it out on Facebook one day. Hey, has this happened to anybody that you were asked about really explicit questions? And I was flooded with responses and got a ton of private messages where, where adults were recounting the questions they were asked. But worse than that, the consequences of those questions. Some people, they're asked those questions, they blow it off. But many kids are very vulnerable and uh, shame is something that they started to experience, guilt and shame. Uh, and, you know, talking to a child about sexually explicit things already is kind of a challenging thing. But now when you're asking them what they did, and that is absolutely wrong in the sight of God, and it's next to murder. I mean, these are kids that they, they don't understand sex. It hasn't, you know, they're, they're starting to form their thoughts about it and we're wrapping all kinds of horrid um, shame up with with these the sexual things and so it can it affects kids right then where they start making bad decisions uh, regarding not doing their schoolwork getting into drugs getting depressed Um, and so I I was flooded with a lot of stories from adults on what these kind of how they how it affected them well, I had never pronounced the word masturbation in my household with six daughters. Okay. I'd never said that word to my wife before. I had certainly never asked it as well. Certainly, I had never asked it as a bishop. Nobody had ever told me there was no training. I mean, you get almost no training to be a bishop. Um, but, how, you know, I was never trained. Ask the kids all these embarrassing questions that make adults blush. I'd never asked those questions, but now that I hear a lot of people were asked those questions, I had one of my daughters that was living with us. I asked her, honey, um, were you ever asked by a bishop when you were a kid, if you masturbate? Now she would have been about 25 at the time. She said, yes, dad. Okay. Now, right here, the emotions, when I talk about this, start to raise <clears throat> emotion of anger, emotions of sadness, um, of what happened to my children behind my back, not knowing what happened, what was happening. Um, a friend of mine asking these questions to my kids. Anyway, she said, yes, dad, I was asked that when I was 12 years old. The next question, well, did they continue to ask you about that? Were you ever asked again? Yes, dad, all the time from the whole time she was in youth. Um, she said that she told the bishop, or she's, I can't remember she told the bishop. She told me that she didn't know what masturbation was. This is age 12. So she asked her friends what that word meant. 
None of her 12-year-old friends that are not members of the church or members of the church, and most of them were not members of the church. None of them ever heard. They, they didn't know what it was at 12 years old. So she said, Dad, I went to the internet. I Googled it. I found out what it was. I found out how to do it. And I found pornography. So there's my daughter being introduced. See, I want to swear right now. The swear words are in my head. I want to swear about this, that this happened to my child. And it wasn't just one. It turned out to be four out of my six daughters were asked very explicit questions. And I could say the questions, um, uh, but there, you, you think of any explicit question, they're all, they've all been asked um, to children behind closed doors. Okay, so I find that out. I'm looking at, this is a no-brainer. Back when I was bishop, um, the world hadn't uh, woken up yet or didn't know about the dangers of one-on-one -on -one stuff. It was just starting. The scouts soon would be, you know, be doing the training and all that stuff. But it... In nineteen uh, or in twenty seventeen, when this all started, um, well, we now know you don't do that. You don't take a kid behind closed doors, and everybody knows you shouldn't be asking that kid sexually explicit questions. Um, so I thought this is a no brainer. We'll be this is this we need to change this. So I went and talked to my state president. He brought the bishop in, and we both we we talked about it. We talked about it for about six months before I decided I can't wait anymore. Um, they're saying, and they did, they, after a few meetings, they said, Sam, there's no problem. There, there's really um, not a problem here. <laughs> and by that time I had, I had printed up a book of the stories that we were receiving. And he said, I've read all those stories. I don't even know what that meant. Um, they, they were on the website, but he said, I've read all those stories um, but you know, we really don't have a problem. So then I said, okay, well then how can we re reach out the next level? And he said, you can write the apostles. So, well, they told you not, to. they told me not to So I'd write the apostles. So I wrote two letters. I gave them to him. We never got any response. I don't know if he sent them, them off. And so I was trying to work through the local authorities. I probably didn't have as much patience as the, uh, Avengers. <laughs> had. Uh, but at that point, I decided to go public with it um, to raise the awareness. If it's going to take him 10 years to make this change, that's 10 years, 10 years of thousands of children having this harm done to them. And so I, I wasn't willing to wait. So we we went public on it. Um, we um, So we had already started a petition that had like 60,000 signatures on it and thousands of stories on that petition. We then um, had a website where people could write their story. We've got over a thousand stories on the, the, the website. And then we published, we not published, uh, I printed a book, printed 15 books of all these stories and decided let's have a march in Salt Lake City, march them to the um the office, the church office building, and hopefully some authority, because I'm in contact with the uh, uh, public affairs, you know, asking him, look, we'd like to have somebody there. We're This is what we're going to do. Um, the fir Before I had the first, um, oh, news conference. So I, we did a bunch of new news conferences. The first one, before I did the first one, I called and said, we're doing a news conference here in Houston. I called my bishop, the stake president. He was out of town. And 
I'd been told you need to let the church know what what you're doing. So I got a hold of public affairs said tomorrow I'm doing a public affairs or a, a news conference. I would like to have somebody from the church right there because I, I don't want to tear the church down. We we want to we want to we're protecting children. Well, I didn't send anybody to that thing, but we were announcing the march and all that. Anyway, so we did a march in Salt Lake City, had a thousand people um, come to the march. It was delight. Were any of you there? I was not able to go, but my story was in that book and we followed it the entire time and and watched everything about it. So, yep, my story was in that book, which was really important to me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. What it did, it raised tons of awareness. It was on all the newspaper, uh, all the news channels and the newspapers and um, the a couple of the TV stations actually marched with us interviewing a lot of folks in the uh, in the march. It was just a delightful, wonderful um, thing. And when we went and then we delivered the uh, the books to the church office building. And that was a very special thing. Um, I had what I called ambassadors, 15 ambassadors. Each one of them had their story in the book had been harmed. I mean, they were pretty egregious. You read their stories and you just want a ball. Um, and so each one of them presented a book for each one of the apostles. We had their name that of the 15 folks on, on the, the one for each one. And, uh, uh, unfortunately they, Rebecca Wimmer are wonderful, but they don't have any power in the church. They sent a woman out to receive and, 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 and not that I, I was a really nice lady, but I, I thought, you know, this is kind of a slap in the face to all these kids that are now adults that um, have, they've lived with the shame for, and there's a lot of people never recover from it. Um, okay, so we did that. And then a few months later, we did a, we, uh, I did a 23 uh, day fast on Temple Square and that generated tons of awareness. Um, I really wasn't looking for publicity, but that was really the only way we knew how do we get this out into the public that will put pressure on the church, that they would make a change. And sure enough, they did make a, a big change right before the day before our march. Um, and I was given a call and said, Sam, you going to call it off now? And I said, well, first of all, I can't call it off because there's too many people that are there. But the second thing is this is a change that is really good, but it it doesn't, it puts us at the 20-yard line, and we got 80 yards to go to get to the touchdown, but it was a significant change. Anyway, I did the 23-day fast uh, at Temple Square, and we had uh, uh, over 1,000 people that came down during, we did a prod, podcast every night, and uh, had over 500,000 views, and a lot of, uh, just a lot of news stories uh, about that. And uh, so a ton of awareness was raised. And at that point in time, I thought, okay, I've done enough. Um, I'm, I've spent a ton of money. I've spent so much money on this thing. And we raised a good bit of money, but nothing compared to what was spent on this whole campaign. And I thought, okay, I got to go home. I've got to address my business. And uh, so I get home and two weeks later, I got the letter to appear at uh disciplinary court uh and that was and did you expect that at all i mean was that even in the back of your mind because of course not you were trying to do what was best for everyone why would they not 
want to take these precautions. That yeah. that's what just floors me. So you that was completely unexpected for you. Yeah. Well, not completely unexpected. I was super disappointed when my friends showed up at my door um with the the letter from the uh state president. Um just really disappointed. So I wasn't totally unexpected. Lots of people said you're going to be excommunicated for this. And I'm looking at, well, I could be, but that's not going to stop me um, from trying to protect children. And I've got grandchildren that are coming up and that are in the church. Uh, they they need, I, I'm doing this for them, but it wasn't just for them. It's for all the kids in the church to, to work to make a change. So anyway, mine resulted in changes in the church, gigantic awareness. So um, great folks, um, like Jen, um, took action uh, for their children as active members of the church, um, which that was really good. We saw a lot of that happening, but it still it still goes on where you have individual bishops, interviews with the bishops, where they're asking sexually explicit questions. So anyway, that's well, that was my journey. And, and, that the, and is the, next, the next year, we continued the campaign. The first year, we called it Protect LDS Children. The next year, we called it Protect Every Child and uh, raised, again, a bunch of awareness and did another march and all that stuff. So I was about two and a half years, almost full time doing all this stuff. Um, when was your march, the first march you did? What year was that? That was 2018, March 30th. Of 2018, yeah. I, I was there. I, I was actually there. Oh, at the you march, were there. I was on the march. Yeah, it was a, a, a difficult decision for me. It was a something I felt so strongly about. But I was uh, right in the middle of my transition. Uh, I was in Salt Lake, and I it was a big match. I remember. I think John Delin was there as well. I think uh -huh. he was there. And uh, yeah, I was uh, in the back of the crowd, not uh, not as courageous, and, and still struggling with my. Mm. Um, you know where I was, but it, it was a it was something that I didn't want to miss. So I was there. Um, Is that know, when you came down for the mission reunion? It was. It was. Yeah, there was a mission yeah. reunion with uh, with you and wow. I think with President Banks. So yeah, I was still. You know, I felt so strongly about it. I was just amazed what he did, and I could not not be part of it while I was down there. But I was still going through, you know, my own um, you know my own issues with the church. Yeah. 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 Well, hey. Well, thanks for coming out to support. <laughs> the changes that we were working for and to some degree affected. Right. And I can see why Ian would be interested as we get into the podcast, we'll see some of the things that he, some of these incredible things that he was involved in um, in the UK. But I wanted to ask Jim very quickly. So you were here in the Salt Lake area when all this was going on. You've got daughters. What was your reaction when you started to hear rumblings about, oh, people are questioning the questions? And I mean, what were your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I was I, I was very much an active member of the church at the time. I'm still very much an active member of the church. I remember hearing, I think the first time I became aware of Sam specifically uh, was on, a, did you go on uh, the Mormon Land podcast, Sam, with the Salt Lake Tribune? Um, Peggy Fletcher Stack. I think I did. I did so many podcasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I, 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 I listened to that sort of religiously, and and I heard what you were doing, and the change that you're talking about uh, took place uh, prior, I think, to the march. And the, the change I think you're referencing is that they now said that parents or that the children can can require or ask for a parent or an adult to be there. Yeah. yeah. When there's an interview. And my wife and I heard that and we went, 
that is absolutely wonderful. And we're doing it. Uh, we had a great bishop at the time. Uh, and most of my kids by that point had gone through the process uh, and had been asked inappropriate questions at different times in their lives. Uh, they were asked inappropriate questions all the time. They, they, they were both, they, my daughters were both students at BYU. And the BYU bishops just asked them just terrible yeah, uh, questions and, and made assumptions about their righteousness based on the light in their eyes rather than any kind of evidence and accused them of things that they weren't doing. And it was just really obnoxious. And so when the church announced that now parents can go sit in on interviews, we decided absolutely we're going to do that. And so we had a great bishop, and but we did it. So uh, that was our experience with it. And I'm very grateful to you, Sam, for opening the door on that. Well, thank you. So it was the day before the march that they made that change, but it wasn't the big headlines didn't appear until that Sunday. Um, yeah, and it was general conference weekend when that came out. And they didn't say in the headline, if your child requests, adults can go, parents can go into the interview. It didn't say that. It said that parents can now go to the interviews. And those are two completely different messages. The one empowers the parent, that headline, but the other one kind of says, okay, the child really needs to be looking for out for his own welfare, not the parents. But still, I love the headline because that sent the message. A lot of people only read the headlines. And so that was the headline that was being um, broadcast. And so it did send the, the signal to a lot of people um, like Jim that, okay, yeah, I want to be in there with my kids and it's, I'm going to make sure that happens, not my child. And Sam? I think they kind of alluded to that. It's always been this way. Yeah. <laughs> this has always been something that the child could have requested. And as a person who as a child was asked invasive questions, I thought I never in a million years would have imagined or probably even wanted, you know, it's, it's such a convoluted issue. But I also thought, I wonder if any of the people like Jim and your wife who did go in the interview, did that change what the bishop would ask? How does a bishop ask those questions of a child when their parents I, I are sitting right there? I I don't know if in this specific case it changed anything. Uh, the bishop that we went into was a great bishop, a great okay. person. Uh, it was a little taken aback. It was, you, you don't have to do this, was, right. was his comment. He says, you don't have to do this. And we said, no, we're doing this. Yeah, we and he do was fine. He's like, this. okay, great. <laughs> and asked entirely appropriate questions. And it was an entirely appropriate interview. But I mean, I'm I'm looking back at my own experience, Sam. I didn't include any of these in in your book, but I was 12 years old uh, when I was handed a copy of Boyd K. Packer's for young men only, that talked about the little factory that you need to make sure you don't put into production and that you don't. I had no idea. It doesn't use the word masturbation. That's what it's talking about. But it uses this tortured euphemism that made absolutely no sense to me. And I took it to my mother, who uh, probably wasn't the right person to take it to because she was just kind of embarrassed by it, didn't know what to say. And her response was finally, don't play with your penis. And that was all I got. And I went, well, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean I can't aim when I'm peeing? I mean, I, that sounds ridiculous, Seriously, but that's exactly what I, I was 12 years old. Yeah, I didn't know anything about masturbation. 
I didn't have any kind of sexual anything. Uh, there was a time when I would pee, pee sort of spread eagle to make sure that I didn't turn on my little factory while the, you know, I mean, that's how ridiculous it was. And I had absolutely no uh, resources of anybody that I felt comfortable talking to about it. Um, it, it just, and I spent my adolescence terrified of my own body, terrified that anything, any kind of sexual arousal in any form was, was something that, that, uh, and thankfully I didn't have bishops growing up who asked me any of those questions. Um, I, I, I had bishops that I think Sam were probably very much like you. Uh, that that it probably didn't even occur to them that that was something to ask. Yeah. But I did have near the end. So, I mean, and this is a story that I didn't tell for, for about 20 years. Uh, but uh, when I was interviewed for my mission, I was interviewed in Salt Lake City. My I grew up in Southern California. My parents moved to Salt Lake City right after I graduated from high school. I stayed in LA to go to the University of Southern California. So I had never spent any time in Salt Lake, but my home ward was in Salt Lake. And I go up there and they say, hey, what a treat. You get to be interviewed for your mission by John Huntsman. This is John Huntsman Sr., the billionaire, the industrialist. I had a political guy who used to say, we've got lots of businessmen in Utah, but only one industrialist. John Huntsman, the billionaire. And he was my state president. I had no idea who he was. I, I didn't know anything about him. And I went into this interview cold, just, and John Huntsman just sort of looked at me and he said, okay, Jim, uh, I don't know you. Uh, you didn't grow up here, but I know your family and you come from good stock was the phrase he used. He says, so I'm going to skip a lot of the things that I say to a lot of people. And I'm just going to ask you the one question I ask of all my missionaries, and that's, do you masturbate? And I said, no. And I was telling the truth. I may have been the only uh, person in history that had as repressed an adolescence that I could answer that question truthfully is no. But I said no. And the next words out of his mouth were, I don't believe you. Uh, he says, I know that this is a problem for young men. I know that this is, I mean, and he seemed sort of just very you know, uh, this is just what I do. I always ask the first question and then they lie to me. And then I, I ask him again. And, and I said, no, the second time when he asked me point blank, the second time, and that made him angry that he then launched into this big tirade about how, if you lie to your stake president, it's like lying to the face of the Lord. And there's no possible way I could be a success as a missionary and this would carry over into my life. After my mission, I couldn't be a successful father. Do you really want to begin this phase of your life by lying to lying to God? And ask me a third time. And by this point, I was thinking, well, do I masturbate? And I just don't know it. Do I mean, I mean, it was just, I just felt awful. I just felt condemned. I mean, the shame the guilt, and, and I had nothing to be guilty about. I had nothing to be ashamed of, but I very sheepishly said no, and it probably sounded like I was lying because I, I, I didn't know what else to do. And and that ended the interview on a terrible note. I mean, he just kind of looked at me with total disgust, like, I gave you a chance, man. You know, you're going to hell, but I can't stop you. I can't stop you from going on a mission. 
I, and he did say, you know, if you're telling me the truth, and he kind of rolled his eyes, if you're telling me the truth, you're the most righteous young man I've ever interviewed. And that, I mean, I, I remember almost crawling out of that office. Right. The office was in the basement of the Monument Park Stake Center, which is, there's a stairwell that leads right down to the basement. And when I had come into the interview, I'd come in through the front door of the building and I'd come all the way down. I left, I scurried out that stairwell, hoping not to make eye contact with anybody because I was sure I was going to hell. I had just lied to the Lord, even though I didn't think I had. I mean, just the shame, the guilt, yeah, the misery. The there was just no. And and I carried that with me throughout my whole mission. I carried that with me. I mean, it, it sort of faded because I knew I really hadn't done anything wrong. But uh, just a terrible, terrible uh, approach uh, to, to how to handle that. And it wasn't until about 20 years after the fact, and I think maybe after John Huntsman was dead, that I felt comfortable telling that story. So, uh, Sam, I, I I have nothing but respect for what you have done here. And it, it, it demonstrates a very real and serious problem in the church. And, and, uh, and I want to give the church credit where credit is due, because not only have they implemented that change, but they have also um, explicitly said in the handbook that masturbation uh, there is no church consequence for masturbation. I have two friends who have sub subsequently served as bishops who've gotten explicit instructions to say, don't deny anybody a temple recommend if they masturbate. Don't deny anybody uh, the sacrament. Uh, there is absolutely no ecclesiastical consequence to that. And But they still say that people come in all the time because this is something that they've kind of been conditioned for throughout their youth you know they were they you had bishops asking these questions on a regular basis uh over and over again as as you know and uh the church is now sort of quietly trying to move away from that they no longer publish for young men only that used to be handed out to every young Thank man goodness. now the actual <laughs> conference talk that boyd k packer gave cannot be found on the church website They've just sort yeah. of quietly scrubbed it, and uh, you can Along see the video. Along with the Mark E. But, Peterson but... pamphlet, if if you're familiar with that. Oh one. yeah, uh, yeah. I never had that. To, one. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, that's. A, I wrote a parody song with RFM to that. Uh, Fifty ways <laughs> to. Well, we won't go into it here, but. It was, so, so let me ask you it a was question. Yes. Was the so, one more like. Sorry. Yeah, Jim, you're, you're broken to the bed up post frozen. or something like that. Oops, sorry. Can you say that again? Or I think my yeah. Oh, oh sorry. Are am I back? There, yep, you're back. I think you're back. Yes. No, back. I was just talking about the Marky Peterson. Yeah, Jim, we've we've well, lost you. So, Sam, I know he's you, trying you to talk about the Marky Peterson. Yes. Okay. So, first yeah, of all, go ahead, Sam. What we're reading for Jim. About, what what Jim had to say about uh, the church no longer have any consequences for masturbation. Oh man, I didn't know that. That's news to me here. So I'm not in the church anymore. I don't go to church, yeah. so I don't hear all this stuff. But that is wonderful news to hear that. Now, has is it still considered in the church to be a sin? Is it? Is it a sin? I think it's a don't ask, I don't, don't tell. I don't know what the theology point. is. Um, I, 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 I'm... Oops, poor Jim. 
Yeah, Jim is. It's very much don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell. I think, and I also feel it's kind of a grassroots thing where, sure, it may not be mentioned in the handbook anymore, but a lot of bishops still think that's what I was asked. That's what I need to ask. So I think it'll take a while to, you know, root that out. But but that's almost how it started. We have a cousin who was a bishop. He refused to shut the door on interviews with children. He's like, I'm not doing that. I don't need that life, you know. And he took a lot of flack from state presidents are like, no, you need to shut the door. Have the, He's like, I am not doing that. So I think everywhere you had these people that saw what was wrong and just, you know, stuck to their guns, somebody like Sam. So I think, Landon, did you have a question to way back? I felt like yeah, I, I, I overspoke you. And then we're going to jump across the pond, as they say, and get into some of this other uh, really important information. Yeah, I, my question was for Sam. Uh, basically, that church made a bunch of change or made this change anyway. As a result of your uh, your activism, or at least uh, it seems that's the way it was, did they ever? Uh, did you ever feel that they were making the change uh, out of wanting to protect the children, or did you feel it was more to silence you? And if it was to protect the children, why do you feel that you were disciplined for bringing up something that needed to be fixed, or that they felt needed to be addressed and fixed? Well, I really can't get in their heads and think, are they doing it to protect the children? Hopefully that's what they were doing. It was to protect the children, but it was just so weird to say, if the child wants it, then they can have the adults. And so it was a weird change, but um, hopefully they were looking at trying to, now, you know, the man that the number one priority in the church, I think, um, you said that the, the they said this this in the UK the news release said that, that their number one priority is protecting children. Is that what it was number one priority? Or on paper, top? yes, on paper, that's the number one priority. Yeah, I, I don't know if they said number one, but they said you know it's it's certain safeguarding children. It's always utmost priority. But we have a sacred responsibility yep. to care right. for and protect our children, youth, and any other vulnerable members, right. so that everyone may yeah. feel safe and protected. Even though our actions don't necessarily show that. Yeah. <laughs> So traditionally, the number one thing to protect is the good name of the church. Mm-hmm. When I was bishop, there it is. when you held a disciplinary council, every time we read through the instructions, that's right at the top to protect the good name of the church. Now, I don't think it works out that way, but um, so I think that's the number one priority. Now, if protecting children is in that, making that change was part of protecting the the church from bad publicity or whatever that I I think that definitely played in, but I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that, yeah, they're, they're trying to protect kids. They should go a lot farther than that. Um, Like hopefully what happened in the UK is going to be, if that, if they did that for children, well, there's no reason whatsoever not to do it for children everywhere. Well, when, when the scouting program, required that for the scout leaders that you had to have, you know, the, the youth protection. I don't know if they did the background checks, but they did the training. And I'm not sure because I'm like you, I left. Uh, and I'm not sure if once the scouting program went away, if all that training went away with it. Because It did, they, but they did. So the next year that we protect every child, we were calling for several things, background checks, training. Well, they did implement the training. So they've got training. It's subpar training, but at least they do have training at this point the scout training was wonderful training the church's training they need to they've got the money to make great trainings um but they uh, they do have the training and and that was an effort to protect the children 
Yeah. I think they could if they wanted. And I also look at, I think the timing on all of this is a little suspect, a whistleblower, and then the changes are made. We've always wanted to do this, Sam Young. We've always wanted to do this. You know, the timing to me is a little suspect. And we're going to talk about that with Ian, I think now, but I just wanted one more time to say thanks to Sam, because, you know, I've talked about it before. You know, I was a victim of these invasive bishops interviews being 12 years old, like, like Jim asked, what do you masturbate? Not knowing what it is, being scared, confused. Also thinking, you know, my parents drove me to this interview. They must want me to talk about it. You know, it doesn't stays with you uh, for a lifetime um, of shame and just confusion. And I didn't really mess us with your sexual development <laughs> when you it have these does. people asking these questions and, and thinking you don't learn boundaries. You think that that's something that it's okay to ask. So, so um, putting my story into Sam's uh, on his website and then putting that into the book, that was one of my first steps where I just said, I'm reclaiming some of this, you know, and, and I, I count that step as the first step in leading me to being able to sit here today, reclaiming a lot of other things and talking about a lot of things and, and talking with others about these things and putting out a podcast so that everybody can kind of join the discussion. So it's very important. One voice like Sam can make such a huge difference um, here and, and the Brit Vengers. And I think now we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit now. And some of our conversations, like I said, when we interviewed Ian and Jim before, and we talked about all this going on with the Brit Vengers, you know, we had, I think a couple different times that we talked in some pre-calls and, and just before and after the show. And Ian has been in leadership uh, throughout his career in the church. And he said to Landon and to me, well, there's more to this story in the UK. And of course, Landon and I look at each other, we're like, wait, what? <laughs> Is there more to the story? And would you be willing to tell it on Mormonish? Right? That's, <laughs> that's our mindset. So uh, we, we are going to talk with Ian now just about this perspective that this, what happened in the UK now, this is something that's been, they've been trying to accomplish for decades. And Ian has kind of seen that. He's been at the forefront of that decades ago. So why don't you just kind of fill us in, Ian, on your perspective of everything that's happened currently and, and okay. what you know about over the past decades that's been happening, because it's very relevant over there, over here. It's completely relevant. Protect the children everywhere. Sure. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the one and only uh, true church upon the face of the earth, uh, the, the organization that professes to speak exclusively for God, uh, where Christ is at the head of the church, the organization that knows more about and should know more about and claims to know more about how to protect children, uh, has been uh, talking about safeguarding and protecting children for decades. If you look at the New Testament, there's references to uh, the value and importance of children in the New Testament. There is uh, uh, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants is replete with examples uh, in respect to the value and importance of children. Third Nephi 17, one of my favorite chapters, uh, is a beautiful chapter, talks about the relationship between the Savior and children. The church has been talking about this uh, for a long time. And, and uh, one example is uh, a pretty famous talk that President Hinkle gave in October 1994, which is titled Save the Children. And in there, uh, and there's so many references um, uh, to, uh, you know, to protect the children. In there, um, President Hinckley said this. He said, how great is our responsibility? How serious is the responsibility of Christian people and men and women of goodwill everywhere to reach out to ease the plight of suffering children, to lift them from the root of despair in which they, they walk? Um, and that uh, that talk uh, goes into quite a bit of detail about the importance and value of safeguarding and protecting the children. 
the church, uh, it won't surprise you, but the church has an organization and a committee that actively tracks legislation on, on key areas, including but not limited to safeguarding protecting the children across the world. That's something I want to talk to Jim about in more detail uh, for a potential podcast. I've learned more about that uh, prior to this, this meeting. It's known about uh, this type of legislation for a long time. It's also known about the uh, personal liability that rests with individuals, uh, bishops, branch presidents, youth leaders, that these individuals have been personally liable for protecting and safeguarding children independently uh, for decades. And so uh, to your point, Rebecca, there is some important history here that predates the extraordinary work that, that Sam's done and the Brit Avengers have done, which is important, I think, for context. So in, uh, uh, in the early 2000s, I was called as a bishop uh, to serve in the Edinburgh Stake, in one of the wards in the Edinburgh Stake. Uh, Sam made a really important point um, about the type and level of training that bishops get. Uh, I, I received no training. I was—I I didn't want the calling, actually. Uh, it's not something that I wanted. And I'd, I'd been a branch president as a young man many years before as a missionary. It wasn't a great experience. Completely out of my depth. Um, completely inappropriate to call me as a branch president. And, and, and it, it put me off leadership completely. I was quite happy for others to, to, to lead, uh, as long as they're good men and women. I was quite happy about that. This the was on your mission you were called as a branch president. I, I, was, a I was a branch president on my mission, and I, I, I never got released. I'm still a branch president. I could walk into the Stranra branch uh, right now, uh, and I plan to do that, by the way. In a few weeks, I'm heading over to Scotland. I'm going to walk in there and, uh, and take over the place. With, with wow. my with my cup of tea. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> called as a bishop, um, called as a bishop and extended the calling, said yes, received no training. And within, and Sam can speak to this, within days, within weeks, uh, found myself completely overwhelmed and out of depth and completely uh, under-resourced in regards to responding to the very serious and very complex issues and challenges that many members had experienced. Even people coming forward, members coming forward who had had awful experiences in terms of sexual assault and other terrible experiences, traumatic experiences that they shared with me uh, all, you know, going on two, two decades now, 2023. This is early 2000. Uh, and I just didn't know what to do. Uh, the best I could do was to counsel, to have faith, to pray, to bless. But in terms of professional training, no retraining was received at all. So it was a, a huge shock and, and Notwithstanding the extraordinary joy uh, that I got through serving and helping to the best of my ability, the whole calling all those years was it took its toll in terms of emotional, uh, you know, impact on, on me. I was going home at eight, nine, ten o'clock at night at times and and just work. You know, Sam can speak to this serving long hours through the week, extraordinary hours. Actually, a lot of members are not aware of the hours that bishops put in. Anyway, within a few weeks of being called as a bishop. I was uh, uh, on the stand, the bishop was presiding, I was presiding at the meeting, and I think it was my ward mission leader uh, uh, came up to the stand. It was, I think it was fasting testimony, I, I think it was, and a note was handed to me. And on the note, it said that an individual had walked into the building and sat down at the back in the congregation a few minutes after the service had, had, had commenced. And that this individual, uh, was known to the local police authorities and was a serious risk to children, that he was a uh, an offender against children. 
um, again, this this was a whole new experience for me. You know, when you um, in, our church is very welcoming. Any anyone can walk in and sit down in the congregation. You just don't know who they are, or what the background is, and so uh, I let the meeting continue. I, I um, as soon as the meeting ended, I uh, came off the stand pretty quickly and uh, shook a few hands, walked up to this individual, and then asked to uh, requested actually to to meet with them uh, in the corridor. Uh, we then walked to my office. My my goal here was to isolate this individual to find out you know who this person was and and did they present a risk to my ward, who I loved deeply, and 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 felt. Um, a sense of responsibility to protect. And by the way, Rebecca, uh, Landon, when you go into the building in the in the Dalkeith ward, which is right adjacent to the police station uh, next door, uh, you've got the, we had the primary uh, meetings on the left, and we had youth meetings immediately after that. So this person would have walked into the building, walked right past the primary, um, and they could walk in any time during the primary lessons, during you know the break, etc. And and youth and, and children were right there at the door. I did change that later. I actually moved them right to the back of the building next to my office because this whole experience unhinged me. Anyway, I, I met with this individual. Uh, I had them sit in my office with a counsellor. I then uh, realised that I needed more information. I had the person's name. I called the Dalkeith Police Station, who we had a fantastic relationship with. The, the our, our ward had hosted a number of very significant events uh, for the police, Young Drivers Challenge, a Blood Drivers event, we were the only organization in Scotland, church-wise, uh, in our church, uh, to, to have these kind of partnerships, relationships with the local police, the police authority. So we were pretty close to them. I called up my, uh, somebody I knew really well at the, uh, the police station, senior officer, and they confirmed that this person was at risk and that they would be arriving promptly. They were literally right next door, and they would be arriving promptly to remove this individual from uh, the building. They did that. This person came along. There was no... Um, there's no incident, nothing like that. Uh, two police officers walked in. They escorted. They didn't handcuff this person. They escorted him out. But the main thing is that the police were involved, and this person was removed from the building. Uh, but, but the whole thing unhinged me. And I, we had a ward, we had a bishop meeting, ward council meeting, and it really bothered me. It really upset me. And so I reached out to the state president, a good man, and I learned that he. Again, like me, he'd just been called just prior to me. I think he'd been called within a few months of, I think he called me. So he'd been called a few months before, then he called me within three months of him being called. Great man. Uh, and he was unprepared, untrained. He didn't know what to do. And so there was no policy. And there was no, no existing policy. I was no just going to say that. There was yeah, nothing that on the 2000s. stand you could have said, I yeah. know what to do with this. I'm going to go check the do. handbook or the policy. Nothing. Okay. If you, if you don't know what to do, you call the state president. The state president is, he holds all the keys. A lot of stuff that goes on in the church, it all happens mostly at the state presidency level. So, you know, my go-to was the state, state president. So I called him, uh, shared the experience, um, and we both kind of wrestled and, and, and uh, you know, discussed, you know, what to do. But it was clear that uh, he, uh, although he had a lot of uh, concern and compassion, that he didn't know what to do. So I took this directly to the area presidency in Solihull in England. We're going. We're talking early 2000s now. I think we're probably talking 2002 or, or thereabouts. So, you know, 20, 21 years prior to all the recent uh, developments that's have been taking place. And and I got stonewalled. I left messages. I called. No one, no, not one person returned my call. 
Um, I, I reverted back to my state president. We just didn't know what to do. So what I did, I called, uh, I, I moved the primary and, and um, youth to the back of the building. I, I, I called somebody. I actually made up a calling. I created a brand new calling. I, I spoke to the state president. I said, look, I want to call a, uh, a ward security specialist. Okay. Didn't exist. Totally made up. I made it up. And, uh, you know, with the council. You were inspired to make it up. Well, possibly, <laughs> possibly. But, you know, when you look at the, uh, you know, the calling the stake safeguarding specialist, I think, in the area of presidency letter that you've, you've got there. That yeah. just, it's incredible uh, that that doesn't uh, exist. It, it yeah, really, it's, it's, if you it's, think it's, about it's, it, is incredible given uh, the sheer it, number of that's, that's actually that's every act Sunday. That's actually what the new calling is that they put in yeah. place as a result yeah. of Avengers uh, 20 years right. later. Yeah, well, well, 20 years well, later. Yeah, and what I did, I mean, I, I, it was a, a, we discussed it as a bishopric. There was a guy that was semi-active. It, it was a security guard, I think, his job. And we were strategic in, in, in calling him uh, to into the calling in, in an area that he had some skill on, and we got him active. So we kind of, you know, we were kind of strategic in that sense. And his job was to look after anyone coming into the building. This is a uh, one ward doing this completely, uh, you know, uh, by itself in the entire UK. This calling didn't exist anywhere else. But but his job, um, and he was a wonderful man. I'll mention his name now. His, his first name. His name was Doug. He's passed away. Um, he was an extraordinary man, and he really took very seriously the made-up call, and we extended it to him to protect the children. His job was to keep an eye on the kids, an eye on the youth and the, and the, and the, uh, the primary kids, and to anyone new coming in, to greet them, to be kind to them, uh, but just to keep an eye on any uh, new faces that we saw. Again, this is completely, you know, making this up uh, as we went along. Uh, we, I tried repeatedly, frequently, to engage with Solihull and got no response whatsoever. I then, um, at this time, by the way, um, the Scottish Parliament, so it's devolved Parliament from the English Parliament. So, you know, the UK is comprised of devolved Parliaments. The Scottish Parliament uh, had devolved authority to oversee a whole range of legislation. It's not got responsibility for tax or finance or nothing like that. But other legislation, like protecting children, it had uh, authority on. And thank goodness, someone in the Scottish Parliament had the foresight and the vision to initiate and, and then implement the original foundation of what we now see as the DBS, which is the Disclosure Barring Service Programme, which now is across England, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, but initi was initiated under the Disclosure Scotland Act, first and foremost in Scotland in the early 2000s. All that was happening at the same time of my uh, as my um, uh, efforts internally in the church to try to facilitate change and try to implement, or, or at least to get some direction, some support beyond our state presidency and get that from the area authorities that we, again, we, we just weren't getting any, any traction, get, getting referred back to our state president. So what I did, I reached out to the Scottish Parliament and, and this act was in its infancy. It was in its early stage. So it was the first reading. Uh, it's, it's been developed over many, many years. What you see now is, is a, a more comprehensive act from what was the first and foremost uh, act, which it was initiated by the Scottish Parliament. I think that was the first act of its kind anywhere in the world that the Scottish Parliament uh, introduced by way of legislation. So I engaged with some of the senior folks at, uh, in Parliament and learned that what this act was, 
Uh, and you described it really well, Landon, you know, in terms of the the overview of what, of what um, the actors intended to do. You know, so if, if, if somebody has been uh, prosecuted or accused or alleged to have um, engaged in uh, illegal acts towards children or youth and they're found and, and uh, investigated and, and, it, and, and they're found guilty, their name is taken and, it, and, and, and their name is then listed on, um, placed on a list. And that comes up uh, in, in the disclosure process. So Scotland was the right at the forefront developing this. And, and I learned a lot about this. And, and, the, and the direction I got from the Scottish Parliament was that any, any organisation, faith-based or company or charity, etc. And remember, the church is an official registered charity in England and Wales and in Scotland, also in Canada. And, and that, that comes with some responsibilities, some legislation, some, some legalities there. And so any organisation employing, volunteer, you know, calling and extending work to or volunteers who work with you had to register uh, under the Disclosure Scotland Act and the church very much qualified. So what happened is that every organization in Scotland uh, took that seriously. This is, this is my understanding, this is what I believe. And this is the understanding based on conversations that I had directly with the Scottish Parliament at that time, that, the, that the, the, what this act was about, what its intent, its purpose was, um, when it was going to be um, uh, enabled, and, and what type and, and of organizations need to register and what those organizations needed to do in order to safeguard and protect children. It was all very clear and it was being um, uh, developed by the Scottish Parliament. I wrote that information down and took notes and I've got them somewhere and, and I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to pull them out. This is from uh, old records that I've got. And I sent them to our state presence and I sent them to the area authority in Solihull and I emailed and I said, look, this is what's happening. You need to register. This is what the act is. You need to register by, by a certain deadline. Um, long story short, I understand and believe that the, 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 there was only one organization in the entire Scotland, as far as I understand, to my best of my understanding and my, and my belief, is that the only organization that, that didn't meet, did not meet the deadline to register with Disclosure Scotland Act was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe that they missed the deadline. Um, despite repeated attempts by me, and I did have the support from the state presidency and my councillors, the church um, dragged its feet and did not take uh, seriously this legislation whatsoever and was late in, in coming to the table. Uh, I, Could I it also... have been a clerical error? We've heard this before. <laughs> no, Forgetting no, no, no. to file and a clerical error, right? Well, okay. <laughs> Seems to be the uh, no. go-to response. Okay, well, when I sent the material, Rebecca, down, you know, I'm to, being to solid, to, to, I, I know, I, I, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I acknowledge that. Uh, when I did send the material down, I did get, I did actually get one response, and that was through the state presidency. This is what they told me. They said, uh, Bishop Wilkes needs to calm down. Um, yeah, not, we're on it. We're going to deal with it. We'll deal with the state presidency. I need to step back, back down. They're on it. And you know what? I, I was fine. I thought, okay, great. You know, like Sam, um, we've pushed, we've pushed. I, I don't care, you know, um, who's who, if you like. All I care was take this legislation seriously, protect children, do your job. For goodness sake, you're the only true church upon the face of the earth. And in my mind, that comes with some some responsibility, right? Um, and so, anyway, I kind of I kind of stepped back. 
And then I learned that the church, uh, or I understood at the time, that the church actually missed the deadline. They then scrambled to, uh, they, 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 so the, the parliament, I, be, I understand, sent out a letter. In, in fact, they sent letters out to all these organizations across Scotland, reminding them frequently what the act is, here's a deadline. And I think you had a grace period of one year. And the church went into the grace period. And by the way, think about that for a moment. Just think about that. When it went into the past the initial deadline and into the grace period where you've got yet another year, but the hard deadline was after the, 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 the grace of one year. It went well into that, and, and I understand it missed that. Incident, by the way, all this information is documented and would be available under the Disclosure Scotland uh, uh, Information Act. And I understand this. What people, year is this? Are yeah, we 2005? 2004, 2005. Yeah. Four and five right now. Okay. And, and, and I understand that. from this, uh, we, we, last time we met, there are people now trying to uh, obtain that information. So these are letters that the parliament wrote to the church in, in Salt Lake and also to the, uh, in Solihull, in, um, in Birmingham, Area Authority, telling them about this legislation, telling them about the deadline. And instructing them and reminding them to um, to register, and also making it clear that. Um, and by the way, this um, statement by the area presidency uh, about training and releasing people—they've uh, known about this for years. Do you know why? Because the instruction I got once they registered um, was: now these disclosure acts are in place, and now the church has registered bishops in Scotland. We're, going back to the early 2000s, were required to release everybody in the ward, in the stake, who had a calling. This, this is what I did. So I released all my auxiliaries with um, youth and primary in the ward. The stake presidency had to do the same across the stake. I released them. We then paid for Disclosure Scotland checks on all the individuals. And then if they came back, okay, green light, you then recall them back into the calling. So I stood up, there was a letter, that, they, and this letter exists from the area of presidency. I read it, and th that was the instruction, and we were supposed to release those people. The ward knew about it. They knew the process. If you're involved in the calling, they knew that we had to do this. Everybody was on board. But oh, this only happened after they, uh, you know, they were instructed um, uh, and, and they were uh, called out, if you like, by, by the Scottish Parliament. So all this documentation, all these letters, all this correspondence, back and forth with the church exists. And I think these people that uh, are involved in this now are trying to get copies of that to, to validate these, these experiences. Um, at that time, uh, there was a, another uh, whistleblower that got involved and actually whistleblew to the Scottish Parliament that the church was likely to miss the deadline and, and um, was likely to be in breach of the legislation. And I think that whistleblower um, provided uh, some insight, if you like, into the workings of the church and where the church was in regards to its preparedness for the uh, legislation. So the church has talked endlessly for decades about protecting children. It tracks legislation actively. I don't know if you're aware that there's an organization that, that tracks that actively across the world. Um, it, it responds, in my opinion, only when it has to, you know, Sam made a point about, um, you know, activists, you know, Britvengers, you know, um, through their uh, activity and uh, activism uh, initiated change. Sam initiated change. If you look at the handbook instructions, title 13.4.1, safeguarding children, section 
Uh, he talks about in US and Canada, if you learn of abuse, you should immediately contact legal authorities. You should counsel with your bishop or state president who will call the abuse helpline for guidance helping in helping victims and meeting reporting requirements. For countries outside of the US and Canada, uh, learn how and when you should report abuse. In most countries, you will immediately need to contact legal authorities, counsel with your bishop or state presidency uh, for direction. Um, I find it disgusting, grotesque, that the church has known about this for decades, known about legislation, known about the calling and, and, and release and the disclosure, uh, you know, uh, history of, of this more recent development, so the work that, that Sam's done for a long, long time, uh, only changes its behavior uh, when it has to, when it's called out through the media or, or called out through activism, activism whatever. And, um, and is now uh, putting all this material together because it, which, which is good, to Jim's point, I think it's a good thing. I, I want to credit the church for doing this. You, you think the only true church would be uh, on the face of it would be leading this, right? You know, uh, it's not. It, this is changed through legislation, changed through pressure, changed through activism. And so it seems that God uh, responds to media and activism and, uh, you know, and, and pressure. And it, it doesn't often come through inspiration. Anyway, I, I applaud the church for the change that it's making. To Sam's point, there's still a heck of a lot more to be done. For example, who's providing the training right now? You know, when this legislation came in, right, and we were releasing and calling people, that's all we did. We called it. There was no training involved. I didn't get any training, you know, of, of, of dealing with, you know, these, the, these, these issues, you know, the ones that Sam spoke about. There's no training. Um, the church has known about these issues for a long time and has deliberately, in my view, dragged its feet and is only changing now because it has to, because of public pressure, and because of legislation. But the questions I've got is, okay, you're doing this training, uh, which is good. What is the training? Who is uh, monitoring it and assessing it and evaluating it independently? Uh, how do you know if the bishops are meeting a certain professional standard? You know, we have professionals in the industry who go to school, they're, they're accredited. You know, we talk about lay ministry. We, we, we brag about how amazing we are because we have a lay ministry and we know all this stuff and, and we're really smart and we... We know all the answers because we're God-chosen people in the professional world and the intellects don't know because we know. We, we know more than God, right? And, and if you're an intellect or academic, we know more than you. Uh, it's bullshit. So, you know, um, if you don't have professionally trained people who have gone to school, uh, who, are, who are trained how to deal with trauma, deal with sexual abuse, which bishops do not have and state presidents don't have that training, unless you have an independent body, an organization, which do exist in Canada, they exist in, in, in the United States, they certainly exist in Europe and, and, and in the UK, that can provide independent oversight of the training standards and quality and implementation um, in the church. Unless you have that, the church continues, in my opinion, is still failing to be transparent and a failing in its uh, uh, sacred obligation to protect children. Yes. Ian, yes. Ian, can, I, can I interrupt just a second? Um, it, one of the things as I listened to uh, the, the podcast uh, that uh, the Brit Vengers did, uh, that's actually uh, to the credit. That's one of the things they highlight that they recommended was that the stake safeguarding specialist that was called had to be professionally trained in this uh, yeah, in yeah. this type of thing. And that uh, they then put the actually the 21st century saints, uh, Jane Christie and Sarah Delaney, 
uh, are the ones who put together a lot of the yeah, of the yeah. uh, material that they could share. So they that yeah. is one thing they are requiring professional people in those state callings to train the other people in in this. So that's kudos. Yeah. On that. yeah. I, I I appreciate highlighting that. I can't thank and appreciate the work that Sam is doing, the Brit Benz has done, and um, you know built on what others have done. Uh, I, I can't think of a more important topic, frankly, than protecting and safeguarding vulnerable children and um, you know and youth. So the work that the Brit Avengers have done is extraordinary, and, and and the work that Sam's done, and there's others, of course, that are not uh, mentioned here, um, who have done you know extraordinary work. But the church has known about this for years, right? And uh, and so to Sam's point, um, there's a platform now. There's a foundation that Sam and the Brit Avengers and others have done to, to create this. There's an important and timely uh, obligation uh, now to build on the good work that these amazing people have done. These these uh, pioneers have done, uh, and to and to move the church forward. Um, if it takes activism, so what? If it's media, whatever, I, I don't care. If it's revelation, great. But you know, let's continue to move forward. Let's hold the church to account. The members have responsibility to hold the church to account. Non-members have responsibility to hold the church to account. And let's bring transparency and openness, and let's see how the church is uh, monitoring. You know, just a quick. Point in, I'll, I'll, I'll stop talking in, in, in a, a quick second. And um, Thomas S. Bonson said, What gets measured gets done. Okay. If you look at all the criteria, you know, how you measure performance and progress in the church, how is it done? Temple activity, very important measurement for lots of reasons that we haven't got time to go into. But the measure covenant people, measure temple activity because it's tithe, the tithing and other, uh, um, it's, it's an important metric for measuring. Uh, missionary work. And the, the, these are, the, the church's agenda is hiding in plain, plain sight. So tithing and temple activity connected. So, uh, service in the church. The church relies entirely on the goodwill and the service of the members. And, of course, missionary work, bringing people in and retaining them. You know, these are the, the primary objectives. The church commits significant resources to these areas. But compared to, um, you know, protecting the children and the billions of dollars that the church has got, is still failing, in my opinion, to commit significant resources to perhaps the most or one of the most important topics you know in the organization it can, can do more it will it should and i believe this conversation and other conversations will facilitate further change in the church and, and i applaud that no i agree and, and when you talk about pioneers i feel like you having shared your story here you are also a pioneer because two decades ago you saw this in your ward where others didn't really take note and you tried to take it up the chain, right? And I think that brings that me to a question that Landon and I discussed a lot, and I, I'd love for everyone to weigh in, and that is why? Why don't they have, I mean, it's in everyone's best interest to be protected and to have background checks. Why? Is it the expense? I can't imagine it's the expense. Why? Why would they not take the step that any organization would take necessarily to cover not a, even if it's selfishly to cover their own, you know what, you know what I mean? Even if it's not for the actual children and the people that are in danger, why do you feel they haven't or they won't? Let, let Sam, what do you think? Why? So, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, <laughs> He's written a few. He wrote wrote a, a biography about uh, David O. McKay, who was Greg Prince. Okay, Greg Prince. Yeah, <clears throat> Greg Prince. He uh, has had a couple of comments about activism. He said, like, um, what Kate Kelly did set women's 
whites in the church back 20 years because the leaders don't like it to appear that they're responding to activism. They want it to appear that they're respond that they're receiving revelation from God. So if you're if you do the activism and they're looking, okay, we need to let it calm down. So it will appear that we got the revelation. So I think that's part of it. Um, probably a big part of it. But uh, <clears throat> Sam, I, I want to point out too when you said that that uh, you know it was Jane Christie and Sarah Delaney who who were really pushing this from inside the church. Uh, uh-huh. So that's even worse. Now you've got women activists pushing an agenda. Yes. In the Heaven forbid. No, well, no. they had something. They had something in their pocket um, in this legislation in the UK that if you put somebody in charge of children, you're liable if you don't do a background yes. check. So they had the law on their side, which was great. I didn't have the law on my side when I was um, doing it. Neither did Kate Kelly have the law on her side. Now, um, but Ian said something that that I thought was really good. Joseph Smith taught that in order to worship properly, you have to, it, a primary important thing is that you understand the nature of God, okay? Like he has a body and whatever else. Anyway, he was, he wanted, that was a, a big thing for him. You need to understand the nature of God. Okay, so Ian just said something that if this is God's nature, I'm liking God more at this point. Ian said, God responds to activism. Great. God responds. To, so I don't know if you said that as a joke, but I really kind of <laughs> like that. I like a God that will yeah. respond. To History has shown. Absolutely. I mean, but these are how the changes happen. No, that's yeah. a very good yeah, point. I think God was polygamy, race, uh, women. Yeah, we can go down. The, and and yeah. now we're seeing it with uh, protecting children. And I believe we'll continue to respond. We yeah. will see this. And then it's so interesting because uh, then you must, we'll see the members say, oh, uh, we've wanted think, this to happen. We've uh, waited for this to happen <laughs> i think god is, god is an activist and he's yep. trying to uh bring the church out of apostasy wow that's an interesting concept what do you think jim just why would a ward or a stake or the brethren not just go we got to protect everybody across the board let's let's be forward thinking let's do this even before others let's be prophetic right. why is this not happening I think Sam really touched on something that that I've seen as a problem, not just in this, but on a lot of other issues, which is the church does not want to look like they are responsive to activism. Uh, They've been very explicit about that. Elder Ahmad uh, Corbett uh, gave a fireside where he used an acronym, ATS, ATC, I'm sorry, Activism Toward the Church. And he reiterated that when he was called as a general authority and gave his first conference talk. He talked about how awful it is to use the worldly tool of activism against um, God's church. I mean, I, I went back and reviewed his talk, and he talked about all the wonderful things that activism has done to uh, in the world. That activism, you know, brought about the Revolutionary War and activism brought about the Civil Rights Movement and did all of these marvelous things. But uh, but you can't use that tool against the church. And I think very specifically, uh, they want, exactly as Sam has said, um, I'm thinking of the Manti Temple. Uh, you, I, this seems yeah. totally unrelated, but the Manti Temple 
has all of these one-of-a-kind uh, unique murals uh, showing the history of the world painted by the artist Minerva Teichert. And there's nothing like them in the world. And they were going to tear it down, and uh, and um, which they did to the Salt Lake Temple. You know, there were all these pioneer mur murals in the Salt Lake Temple. They're all gone. And every a lot of people were upset, but it was just, oh, well, that's the way it goes. And they were going to do the same thing to the Manti Temple, and there was a huge groundswell. And then they came back and said, okay, we're not going to do this. But then Elder Razband specifically said, our decision not to do this has nothing to do whatsoever with any of this activism. It has to do with we've received revelation that we're not to do this. Yeah. And I just look at that and say, that's my why. You know, why... Uh, you know, I was taught as a primary kid that the reason we have the word of wisdom is that Emma was upset about people spitting tobacco on the floor of the school of the prophets, and she had to scrub it out. And so Joseph took that to the Lord, and that's how we got the word of wisdom. And and I was taught that that was a plus. That's great. I mean, that's how revelation works. Revelation comes when we have a question and we take it to the Lord, and that's where we get an answer. So, uh, you know, there's, I, I don't think the two things have to be, it, can't, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Activism can spur people towards the decision to go to the Lord and get revelation. And I don't understand why we don't embrace that, why we don't embrace that idea and own it and wrap ourselves around it, because that's the only way revelation has ever come before. That's the only way revelation is going to come in the future. And, you know, th there's there's no shame in that. There's no embarrassment to that. Uh, I, I also do want to say I was called as a Weeblows leader in the Scouts, and the Boy Scouts of America required background checks. Yes, and I went did. through a background check to be a Weeblows leader. If I had been called to be a bishop, I wouldn't have had to go through a background check. But, but being called in that organization, the Boy Scouts required these kinds of background checks. So I, I think Sam really kind of hits the nail on the head there in that the issue is the church wants to look like it is above the fray, that uh, your activism is useless because we are so guided by the Lord. And, and I just think that, that really underestimates the Lord. Uh, I mean, the, the Lord... I mean, why I have as much direct access to heaven as Russell M. Nelson does, right? I can take my petition to the Lord, and Jesus talked about the unjust judge and people who take their petitions and are activists to God, and God finally relents. I mean, we have we have scriptural stories where that happens. Uh, that to me is is an entirely appropriate way to do it, and I just think the church is reticent. To, to admit that human uh, human error, but also human activism is very much a part of the plan. And I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be going forward. Yeah, and it always it, has it... been. I think it always has been. And I think, you know, instead of activism, I like the word inspiration. Why can't a regular member like Ian in his ward have the, you know, inspiration that something needs to happen in his ward to protect children? 
Okay, so it looks like everybody's on mute. Okay. Is everybody on mute? Well, uh, you and you and Jim were. Landon, did you mute us? Yeah, now Landon? Landon's muted. Now Landon's <laughs> muted. Ah, somebody's trying the powers that I think yeah. it's the strengthening the members committee has come after it. it. Landon, and you're the, muted. No, I was muted. going to say, I was going to say if I was muted, that activism to me is simply personal revelation that somebody like Ian in his ward had personal intuition that something needed to be done to protect children. And he took action. And I think there's that sense that, like you said, it cannot be a ground up kind of a thing. The Q12 is or 15 is supposed to know. And I feel there's a lot of issues where, because they're not on the ground, boots on the ground, like a lot of the general authorities in the seventies and the bishops and state presidents, they don't know what's happening Mm -hmm. on the ward level. And they perhaps don't have the capacity or there's not the mechanism for them to hear these things. And they think somehow they'll just sort of come up with it, but that's not gonna happen. People on the ground, like a Bishop Sam or a Bishop Ian, those are the ones that know. Those are the ones that should be listened to. So these are really good points. Landon, unmute yourself. What what do you think is a reason why it's not happening? Or any comments on this? And then we'll hear from Ian. And then I think we'll we'll wrap. This is such a great conversation. What do you think, Landon? You know, I I I hate to think that that money is one of the issues, but I've oh. I've just seen the church over so many different issues where they have the money to fix something and they don't. Uh, yeah. And they they keep things so cheap that uh, I, I think that that may be part of it is they're looking. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of twofold. One, the cost of running all these background checks is g- going to have to be absorbed by the church. Uh, so I think I think that's one of their concerns. And then the second concern uh, to, to me is that they would have people who don't want a background check run and then they can't be in a calling and they may have people who say, if I got to get a background check, I'm not participating and they they walk away. So I, I can kind of see two issues there. And and I don't want to think that anyone that that the people in the church don't care about this issue, because I think I think we all know the wonderful people in the church that they care about this. I just don't see the institution putting the money into the program because that in any institution, whether it's work, the scouts, you see these programs being implemented and and to say well that you know we're waiting we can't react to somebody down below and act like we're re- responding to activism well if you're prophetic you should be in the lead you should be making these these should have been implemented 20 years ago when Ian brought this right. up yeah. uh not not 20 years in in the rears uh, so i can't think of a of a logical reason why you wouldn't implement this because even if it's money you would think well, if we get sued over this and we're going to pay millions of dollars, it's in our best interest to run these background checks so we're not having well, these million-dollar lawsuits. That, that is a huge going. issue. And I think because in the past, no lawyer would take a case like that. That wasn't something that was going to happen. That is changing. People understand how much money the church has. Somebody in a Reddit post the other day said that they contacted a law firm to talk about some abuses when they were young in the church. The law firm said, come in and talk to us. This is interesting. I think if this happens over and over again, we're going to see some changes to protect on the front end as these lawsuits happen, because there's a lot of money. There's a lot of attorneys that would be interested in. So I think times are changing. Okay, Ian, what do you think? Final yeah, thoughts thank, on all yeah. of this. And I think we lost I, Jim, unless I can't see him. Sorry. Is he back? Jim, there he is. I'm back. Jim, Sorry. He's back. Um, Sorry. Welcome back. Welcome back, Jim. Uh, years ago, when I first <laughs> entered into business, uh, Rebecca, someone said something to me that I thought was quite profound. They said, 
if you want to know why people behave the way they do or what motivate motivates them, follow the money. And and boy, is that true. And so I think one of the I think Sam's uh, and Jim's highlighted a really important reason. You know, to your question, why why doesn't the church do this? There's perhaps there's perhaps another uh, equally uh, big reason why the church doesn't this. And I think the answer to that is found in the question that I was asked by Elder Oaks when he called me into the state presidency. The first question he asked me was alone in the room was Elder Cook and Elder Oaks, and and he asked me this, if there's any any history in my life that could be a threat or uh, could hinder or harm the church or bring the church's name into disrepute. Uh, I, I didn't expect that question. I said, no, of, of course not. And, and I, I said, that's a, a you know, an, an, an interesting question. And uh, I said, can you expound on that? He says, well, we, you know, this is the Lord's church and, and we have to protect the good name of the church. I said, oh, that, that, that makes sense. And so, uh, you know, the church um, has, uh, you know, it, it, it's committed financially to protecting, you know, its, its, its reputation. Anything that it sees as a, as a potential risk, um, which it cannot, especially things that it can't control, it's very concerned about. So the training that we got as a state presidency uh, with Elder Oaks and Elder Cook and some other general authorities like Elder Christensen was on these issues where people report sexual abuse and sexual assault was to keep them in-house, to direct them to uh, church, you know, uh, church council, uh, to church legal, you know, senior church, Salt Lake area authority level uh, professional services, if you like, um, professional psychological services but to keep these problems in-house so that they don't get out uh, it limits the lawsuits they can control the narrative control the conversation and keeping in mind and also pushing and and this needs to be said uh, pushing the principle of repentance and forgiveness you know that there's some talks and references which place the blame on victims jim and i have talked about this there's a talk is it elder I remember the general authority. Richard G. Scott. Richard G. Scott is an interesting individual there, an inspired individual, uh, being sarcastic there. But he, he he has a talk where he places some blame on, on the victims. So, you know, as a church, we teach forgiveness. We teach repentance. And we teach uh, victims to forgive their um, perpetrators. And the bishops and the state presidents, and certainly my experience, are taught and trained to emphasize that. So don't report this to the police which you should, if, if a criminal um, uh, act has been committed, uh, a breach of the law, you have to report it to the police. You just you just have to do that. The church doesn't have that policy worldwide. You've, you've, you can see it in the handbook. It only will instruct that where it has to. Where it doesn't have to, it will uh, keep it in-house. So work with the victim, provide all services that you can, professional services as much as you can, counsel, give blessings, keep it in-house. Um, teach forgiveness, teach repentance, and uh, and keep this um, from damaging the good name and the reputation of the church. That, in my opinion, is another major reason, which ties to all the finances, by the way, because if, if, if more members become disillusioned with the church, more will leave, less tithing. I, I really think it's, maybe being a bit cynical here, but a lot of it's tied to the, the financial um if you like longevity of the church, the concern about hemorrhaging financial. I don't think it's the only thing, but but that I think that's another reason is is um, to protect the name of the church, keep it in house, and um, and control as much of it as you can, and 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 make sure it doesn't go into you know turn into a lawsuit. 
So yes, you know, uh, not to be seen to be, uh, you know, responding to activism, which it does, to Jim's point, I think it's a good thing, and also controlling as much as it can any potential risk or threat to the church by providing, uh, you know, containing it essentially within the church. That's, that's my last point. No, I think that's, and it's funny how many podcasts Landon and I do. And don't you think Landon, that that's kind of the answer almost to every single topic we talk about, it kind of boils down to those things that Ian just talked about and that everyone else mentioned, don't you think? Yeah. The good name of the church. I think that uh, Sam yeah. mentioned that earlier and, yeah. and Ian, I, I think all those others are kind of subsidiary to that, but I, I think Sam's yeah. right. That's the number one thing, protect the church at any yeah. cost. It's all part of it. So perhaps not protect the children this time, perhaps protect the church. But anyway, what an amazing conversation and what amazing participation and contributions from everybody here. This has just been wonderful. And um, I'd like our viewers and listeners, please weigh in in the comments. Please tell us, um, do you remember times when you were part of interviews that were invasive? Were you in leadership or you were uncomfortable talking to people? Do you have experiences um, in this world? And tell us what you think, because by talking about about it. Um, this is the way that we get the word out. And this is the way that we make change. So um, if you would like to receive notifications um, on our episodes of Mormonish, you can um, hit the, um, the notification bell. We'd appreciate if you like and subscribe. You can also support us financially. Um, we absolutely love our viewers and our listeners. And um, we have links to PayPal and Venmo in our show notes. And again, we just want to thank this incredible panel. We were so honored to have Sam Young with us. Thank you so much, Sam. And thank, thank you, you, Ian and Jim again. And, and I have to say, I don't think this discussion is really over. I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg and things are happening. And so I would like to ask you guys, uh, if new information comes out, can we reconvene and talk about this again? Because I feel like thing, things are a changing. <laughs> and I think there may be some new things on the horizon. So I'd love to get this panel uh, back together. I think we have really good chemistry and I think it'd be fun to talk again. And I'm sure our listeners and viewers uh, agree. So, all right, everybody, thank you so much again. Good night from Mormonish. We appreciate all of you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.